Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. When I think about it, I'm not sure there was ever a time in which I was not into the opposite sex. Ever since seeing Jamie Lee Curtis in the film Trading Places as a young boy, I was pretty much hooked. Other than Jamie Lee, the first love of my life was my kindergarten girlfriend, Ashley Taylor. The relationship lasted the entire school year, but when we ended up in different first grade classes, the distance would prove to be too difficult. We would revisit our love affair briefly in fifth grade, but it just wasn't the same as our initial time together during the 88-89 school year. My main squeeze from first to third would be Melanie Ayers. Though we would only have Mrs. Reeves' class together during that three-year span, we did manage to maintain our romance until she left White Oak Elementary to be homeschooled during our fourth year. As hard as it was to move on, that year I would eventually fall for Brooke Kelly. Our relationship would only last for about a week. She would soon dump me for a much taller and better-looking kid in our grade named Jason Plemons. I hated that asshole for luring Brooke away from me, and I quickly began to formulate a scheme to win her back. My plan was to create two fake letters— One from Brooke to Jason, in which she breaks up with him, and one from Jason to Brooke, in which he breaks up with her. And just to be safe and not have the letters traced back to me through handwriting analysis, I decided to type these letters, you know, the way in which any normal ten-year-old would choose to break up with someone. I'd also like to mention that to be extra safe, I used separate typewriters for each letter, and made sure to type Jason's letter to Brooke on the shittier of the two, and purposely misspelled some of the words to make him look like a real dumbass. The next day at school, I got my friend Jay Bishop to deliver the letters to Brooke and Jason separately. I thought it might be a little too suspicious coming from me. Unfortunately, my plan did not work. I had not counted on them speaking to one another after receiving the letters. I assumed... They'd be too distraught. But they did speak, and quickly realized that these typed letters were indeed fake. I'm also pretty sure Jay told them I had done it. Brooke did not come running back to me that day, like I had hoped she would. And though I was heartbroken and humiliated, the experience did make the bond that I already had with rock and roll all the more stronger. One of my main sources for music at this time was my mother's 45 collection, which I would spend hours with in my room, playing them on my plastic Fisher-Price record player. Her collection leaned heavily into the British invasion, especially the Beatles, and my particular favorite of hers was the Ticket to Ride single. That song and its B-side, Yes It Is, were very important to me, as I began to morph into the lovesick sad boy persona that I'd maintained for many years to come. To me, that single, as well as a number of others in my mom's collection, would come to represent what I loved most about rock and roll. A catchy melody and a broken heart.
And as I got older and my taste began to expand, my preference for pop songs that included these two essential ingredients still remained. So needless to say, when I first heard the album Shake Some Action by Flaming Groovies, I instantly loved it. Now I imagine the first time that I heard the song Shake Some Action was most likely Cracker's cover of it that appears in the film Clueless. A few years or so later, I would finally hear the original while listening to 88.5, the greatest college radio station of all time. That's right, I said it. As a lovesick sad boy, I felt an instant kinship with the song. And then, sometime later, I would hear Yola Tango's version of You Tore Me Down from their album Fake Book. Of course, I loved it and thought I should probably explore these flaming groovies a bit further. So I decided to dive in. I put on the Flaming Groovies 1976 album, Shake Some Action, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Hello, my name is uh, Cyril Jordan, and I'm the leader of a band called the Flamin' Groovies. Also, uh, the songwriter, uh, the arranger, that's a very important part uh, and role that I play. And I was doing that uh, back when I didn't even know what an arranger was, but I have found out, uh, you know, since then. And uh, I also got the record deals for the band, so I en- ended up managing. And uh, I'm still uh, doing it. The Flaming Groovy Cyril Jordan would grow up in San Francisco, California. And it is there at an early age that he would fall in love with guitars and rock and roll. Thank God it was San Francisco because uh, it was an international city. It had a very large port. Uh, So, you know, if you're talking culture, we had access to everything back then, you know. And uh, I think the city died when they closed the port, but that's another story. Um, But it was a fantastic place to grow up. I got a Mickey Mouse guitar when I was nine in 57, uh, four string. Uh, and then I got a ukulele in 1960. But I fell in love with electric guitar before I fell in love with groups. I just loved the sound of the electric guitar. And I got all the catalogs, Fenders, Gibson, Gretsch. So by 62, I was pretty well versed with uh you know what the whole setup was uh, and then the beach boys came along with little deuce coop and that really was it for me right there that was the beginning so i got their uh, surfing usa album and i actually got a chuck berry album berries on top and i started learning how to play you know not many people know this but in those days we had uh, four speeds on our record players we had 78 we had 45 we had 33 and a third we had 16 for spoken word by trial and error, I realized 
that if I turned the speed down on an LP to 16, I was still in the same key, okay? If you did it on a 45, if you went down to 33, you'd be in a different key. So that took me about a week or two to figure out. And then I went, okay, let's try the LP. So I would just slow down the album and learn the intro to Johnny Be Good, which is slowed down. It's very easy to figure out that way. You know, uh, I had a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of mis mishaps with the needle lifting it on the record and doing it again. So my, my records just got chewed up eventually. And I was always buying uh, double and triple copies of LPs. And I had a box marked L where... Uh, all the uh, records and albums that I wanted to learn uh, was thrown into that box. So I just, you know, went ahead and started learning. Now, at the end of 63, I almost gave it up because the um, uh, the pop charts, AM radio was getting really whatever. You know, we had uh, Sugar Shack. We had Hey Little Cobra. And then we had the singing nun. And, you know, I, I just kind of, it wasn't for I Get Around by the Beach Boys. I think I might have given it up, except about two months after that, the British invasion hit, and that was it. I got sucked right back into it, you know, big time. It is while still in high school that Jordan would begin playing with the group of musicians that would eventually become the Flaming Groovies. I was in a band with a friend of mine named Ron Greco, who later uh, formed a band called Crime. I knew Ron from about 62. We were in junior high school together. And then when I saw the Beatles um, at the Cow Palace in 64, I saw Ron again. So he was playing drums at that time. So I'd go over to his house and we'd jam a bit and stuff, you know. We put together a band with a couple of guys, uh, you know, that we knew. And uh, it was a very strange looking band because one of the guys in the band was, was uh, 21. He had just gotten out of the Marines. He had a goatee, played sax, you know. <laughs> And then I met my uh, friend, George Alexander, uh, one night at a pool hall. He was playing harmonica. I was talking to my girlfriend on the phone, and I said, hey, listen, let me call you back. So I went over, introduced myself. We started talking. Apparently, he had a band he was with, and uh, I got together with those guys. And that was Roy Loney, Tim Lynch. Those were the other two guys that George was working with. They were all about two and a half years older than I was. Uh, they were all in college. They had cars. And we became a band called The Chosen Few, which I had nothing to do with. Uh, and I thought the name was extremely pretentious. And then they found out there was like 15 Chosen Fews in, in the United States, you know. <laughs> so then we became the Lost and Found, uh, which I even thought was worse, you know. Uh, it wasn't until the Beatles' last concert at Candlestick in 1966, the day after that concert, we became the Flaming Groovies. We were really into the Love and Spoonful uh, at that point. And, uh, you know, with, with uh, four syllables, Love and Spoonful, Flame and Groovies, you know. But the thing that's really funny, you know, we got put down big time for that name. Uh, and for years, if not decades afterwards, people would say, what a stupid name. Grail Marcus mentioned it in his book, uh, The History of Rock and Roll, Ten Songs. And uh, I thought to myself, isn't that funny that even Grail Marcus doesn't know what a flaming groovy means? What that means is a, a marijuana cigarette, okay? That's what people were calling marijuana uh, joints uh, back then, certainly certain part of the culture was was calling it a flame and groovy so that's where the name comes from 
Having honed their skills for some time while playing around the Bay Area, and in turn creating a local following, the band would eventually enter Coast Recorders in San Francisco to record their debut 10-inch. Self-financing the sessions and putting it out through their own Snaz recording label, Sneakers would be released in early 68, selling well enough locally to necessitate a second pressing. Some time to catch my breath here Catch taste the smell of death near Clap your hands and kick a petunia Don't learn too much, it'll ruin ya See your sound when it fits you Learn karate and jujitsu Due in part to the relative success of Sneakers The band would come to the attention of Epic Records Who like a number of major labels Had descended upon the Bay Area following its emergence as the epicenter of the late 60s counterculture movement. Yeah, I was uh, just getting out of high school. Uh, actually, got kicked out, uh, even though I had all straight A's and B's. Yeah, they didn't really appreciate the way I looked with long hair, so I got sent over to John Adams of Delft High School, which was in the hate Ashbury, okay? <laughs> you know, my dad on his deathbed, he said to me, uh, how the hell did you get into this? And I, I told him, I said, Pop, Everywhere I went, there it was, just you know, waiting for me to jump in. Uh, you know, by 68, we had no record labels here in San Francisco. Uh, there was Fantasy Records, which was Soul Dance. It was an old uh, jazz label that signed Credence. In 66, uh, we went to talk to them, and they gave us this contract, which basically said uh, that they would own everything. And I... I threw it in the trash. You know, uh, John Fogarty signed it, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> I, you know, I uh, was amazed that, you know, as young as I was, uh, I wasn't taken in by all the all the baloney that was written down in there. I immediately realized, hey, this is a ripoff and uh, let's not do it, you know. But to make a long story short, by 68, uh, the Haight-Ashbury music scene was so famous at that point that Warner Brothers sent up uh, a bunch of people and opened up an office here. And pretty soon Columbia opened up an office, RCA. All the record companies came here. There were two guys, um, Steve Tuplay and Chuck Gregory, who were A&R people from Epic. Uh, and they came to see us. Now, the main reason they signed us when I asked Chuck, when we did the deal and I asked him, I said, what was the, the reason why you decided to put us on the label? And he said, well, basically, you know, we found out that you guys had cut your own album and that you had sold over 4,000 copies of it. We went through three pressings, you know, uh, and we were selling out immediately because a friend of ours worked at Tower Records. He put the 10-inch record on the counter next to the cash register. So anybody coming in with a stack of records, they would look at it and they go, okay, yeah, uh, I'll take this one too, you know. And uh, Chuck was telling me that uh, even in the 50s, if they heard of a local band like the uh, Fiestas on Old Town with their song So Fine, selling 1,500 copies in that town back east, uh, they realized that they could sell 1,500 probably in every city. That's when you would go national. He said that was basically the main motivator. 
that you guys were already uh, sellable. You know, you guys were, were making sales. Epic would release the band's major label debut, Super Snaz, in September of 1969. But by the following year, the band would leave the label and sign with Kama Sutra Records. What happened was is that Epic went in the mad rush to find the next Beatles. Okay, the, you know, you got to realize that these record companies were drooling now. They had heard about DECA passing on the Beatles. They had also heard about Capital not picking up the option on the first album. And luckily, they woke up real fast. I'm sure heads rolled at Capitol around uh, December of uh, 63. But anyway, yeah, they were all drooling for the next Beatles. So they were looking for a band. And Epic, in their mad rush and their mania to sign the next great band, they signed a whole bunch of bands. They signed us. They signed Poco. They signed, uh, signed Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks, a group called Catfish, on and on and on. And we found out later that all of us were shelved because Epic being connected to Columbia was a tax write-off for Columbia. The only people making money on Epic at that time was Bobby Vinton with Blue Velvet and uh, the Yardbirds. Okay. By the time a year went by, we were in New York. We filled in at, at the Fillmore East for a band that couldn't make it. Their, their van broke down and our roadies came over to our hotel and said, hey, they need a band. So we, we loaded our gear up. We went there and we did our gig. And Blue Minds, you know. Uh, Richard Robinson, who was the editor of Hip Parader magazine, and Lenny Kay, his best friend, were in the audience. And they freaked out. So they called Epic to find out where we were. And Epic said that they didn't know we were in New York. And uh, if it wasn't for John Zacherly, John Zacherly uh, was a DJ, a big DJ on WNEW at that time. But in the 50s, he was a, a TV horror host named Zacherly, and his face is on two issues of Famous Monsters, right? So anyway, this guy Zacherly's driving home from work, and he drives by our hotel, the Gorham, on uh, 57th Street, and uh, sees uh, these roadies loading up Flamin' Groovy's amps into a van. So the next day after the Fillmore show, uh, 10 in the morning, there's a knock on my door. And there's Richard Robinson and Lenny Kay. And Richard says, I want to give you a record deal with Kama Sutra. And I went, wow, that's my favorite label, The Love and Spoonful. So we did a record deal with those guys, got an advance of $16,000. Uh, Epic was real glad to let us go, by the way, because the single we put out on Epic, Rockin' Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Flu, it took off here in the Bay Area. We got the number 27 on KYA. And then we were pick of the week with Elvis and Aretha on KFRC, okay? So three weeks later, there's no record sales, so they just dumped us. But Johnny Rivers heard our version, and he recorded it, and he got into the charts instead of us with it. So make a long story short, we were glad to get off Epic, and now we're on Kama Sutra. We went back to San Francisco, we cut Flamingo. The band would release two records with Kama Sutra, 1970's Flamingo, and 1971's Teenage Head.
it is following the release of Teenage Head that the band would experience significant change, starting with the exit of original members Tim Lynch and Roy Lonnie, and the induction of new members James Farrell and Chris Wilson. Before we cut Teenage, for a couple of years we had three guitars. Roy also played guitar. Tim and I uh, were the two lead guitar players and Roy was playing rhythm. So we were a three guitar band before Moby Gray. But he stopped playing guitar uh, right at around the end of 68. So we go to uh, New York to cut Teenage Head at Bell Studios, which is a famous studio where the uh, drifters cut all their stuff. I think Satanic Majesties was recorded there. But anyway, uh, Timmy gets busted for dealing drugs. So I end up being the only guitar player when we show up there. So I'm doing one overdub after another, okay? I'm doing the arrangement. I'm help writing the songs. I'm doing all the overdubs, figuring out all the guitar parts. Now, Timmy comes out in the last week, and he plays harp on Teenage. He plays rhythm guitar on uh, Dr. Boogie and Evil Hearted Ada, and he plays some lead on Whiskey Woman. Otherwise, I'm playing guitar on everything. And uh, I guess Roy, we had lost our manager the year before, a guy named Alfred Kramer. Uh, he split with all our money. And then Timmy goes to jail. And Tim and Roy grew up together. They had a folk thing going when they were little kids, you know. So I got a feeling that Roy was very, very uh, bummed out about uh, this turn of events. And he just lost interest, especially when Kama Sutra didn't do anything with Teenage Head. So he left the band. I brought in James Farrell on guitar, and then I brought in Mr. Chris Wilson. Chris was the lead singer in my friend Michael Wilhelm's band, a band called Loose Gravel. And they got uh, bumped from uh, the last days at the Fillmore. There's famous footage of Michael yelling at Bill Graham because Bill wouldn't put Loose Gravel on the bill, you know. And I remember that day really well. Michael came over to a friend's house. We were all there, and he was crying. Uh, I can still see it like it was yesterday actually so anyway chris decided he was going to go back home he was going to leave the band and go back home and I, I found out about this and i got in touch with mr wilson and i told him he said well, why don't we go out have a drink we'll talk about it you know so he didn't have a place to stay I, I, that was his main reason for going back home and i said well listen you could stay with me and my mom you know so that was the beginning of our partnership right there following the commercial disappointment of teenage head the band would leave Kama Sutra and in 1972 relocate to England after reaching a deal with United Artists Records. Well, we were opening at that point. We had been opening for the Ike and Tina Turner Review every time they played California. We did that with Big Brother and Janice. We also did it with Canned Heat. So we had all these connections because of that. The guy that was working with Ike Turner his name was Gerhard Augustine. He was the head of A&R at UA. And Gerhard told me it might make more sense for us to move to England. I said, why is that? He goes, look, if you want to get a hit record here in America, you got to sell 35,000 records a day for 15 weeks. And that's the only way to get into the top 40. You want to get in the top 20 in England? All you got to do is sell 17,000 records, right? You know, all of a sudden I realized, oh, we get another record deal. We don't got to talk to company to, uh, you know, spending a hundred grand on promo. Uh, you know, we should be able to, to sell enough in England. So anyway, 
I went down and talked to the guys at UA, and uh, one of the A&R guys, this guy, uh, Marty Surf, was a complete jerk. And Gerhardt uh, stepped in, called up Andrew Lauder. Uh, it was two in the afternoon, so it was eight hours ahead. He woke up Andrew Lauder in London, and he said, listen, why don't we just do the groovy thing over there? So I fly over to England, and we set up the deal with UA. The guys come over eight weeks later when I've got everything set up, and we moved to England, and we lived there the whole year. As the band began to prepare for their first release on United Artist, Jordan would make the request for the sessions to be held at Rockfield Studios in Wales and be produced by musician Dave Edmonds. I hear you knocking. I mean, Roy was still in the band. We were driving to Lake Tahoe in his 57 Chevy, and I hear you knocking comes on, and we were just blown away. You know, and I said to Roy, I said, you know, this place where he cut this, this is the new Sun Studios, you know. I never forgot that impression. And when Gerhardt told me about moving to England and how it might be a good idea, all of a sudden I remembered, oh, yeah, that's where Edmonds is. When I was setting up the deal with United Artists, uh, I was staying at Andrew Lauder's house. He was the head of A&R there. And uh, Andrew asked me, he said, well, where do you want to record? And I said, we heard about this place, Rockfield. We like to work. Have you uh, done any business with them? And he went, oh, yeah, that shouldn't be a problem. And then he asked who I want for a producer. And I said, I wanted to work with Dave Edmonds. And, and Andrew also said that wouldn't be a problem. So Andrew sets up a bun- bunch of interviews, Melody Maker and The Enemy. And they're all going, what are you doing here? And so, well, we come over to record with Dave Edmonds. Well, I don't find out until 75 that David, they never contacted Edmonds. And the day of the session, Kingsley Ward, the owner of Rockfield Studios, called David and said, hey, there's a big American band coming in. You're producing them. You know. <laughs> it was a total fluke, you know. Rockfield Studios was basically uh, originally owned by Mr. Charles Royce of Rolls-Royce. Uh, he got killed in an airplane accident right there in Rockfield Fields in 1914. But it was his it was his riding stables, okay? So the studio was in the barn. Was in this old wooden barn that had like a million flies in it buzzing around, you know. And there were four big 18-inch Lockwood speakers above the board facing down. And uh, you remember Spinal Tap with uh, the knob that went to 11, right? Okay, uh, I'm looking at the uh, the master volume on the board, and it says, it goes from 1 to 10, and then it says SD, and then it's uh, at an 11 mark, and then at a 12 mark, it says DE. And I asked Kingsley, I said, what's uh, SD? He goes, Stone Deaf. And, and 12, obviously, is Dave Edmonds, which is where he would have the volume when he was working, you know. It's blasting loud. I mean, you know, our music never sounded so good. I mean, when we got the records, we went home. It was like, oh, Jesus, you know. (laughs) 
Among the material recorded during the sessions with Edmonds at Rockfield would be the track Slow Death, which United Artists would choose as the band's first single with the label, releasing it in June of Unfortunately for the band, an issue with the track's lyrics would prevent market exposure and eventually lead to the end of their time on United Artists. Well, what happened was is that those guys were fucking idiots, okay? We're not British, so we don't know that you can't say the word morphine on the BBC. Okay, so I give them three records. I give them Shake Some Action, You Tore Me Down, Slow Death. Three different genres of music. Because I figured out, you know, let's let's not uh, spread ourselves too thin. They pick Slow Death. And Slow Death gets banned by the BBC immediately, okay? Uh, and that was pretty much the death blow for the Flaming Brewies in England at that time. They told us, uh, it's Christmas, we'll send you guys back, and then you can come back afterwards. And then, we, you know, that was bullshit, and we never came back. But I never signed the deal. Uh, and I ended up with the copy master of all those songs. So, you know, my profession is nine-tenths of the law. So I, I went around for the next three years shopping that demo. I went to every record company in L.A., in New York, in Europe, you know. Take three weeks and go try to shop it. Get doors slammed in my face. I'm waiting on a, an old shitty hotel in New York for a phone call. I felt like Willie Loman. Uh, in, in death of a salesman, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was, I still have nightmares about those days. Eventually, Jordan would meet the late, great Greg Shaw, founder of Bump Records and a true champion of underground music. And it is through Shaw that the band would come to the attention of legendary music executive Seymour Stein. Greg, you know, had come to shows. I kind of knew about him, and then he was also a writer. I think he wrote for The Navigator, which was an underground rock paper. I met him in L.A. one day and uh, went over to his house. He had a huge 45 collection. We started playing 45, and I played him uh, You Tore Me Down, and he freaked out. And he said he's got a record label he's starting. He wants to, to put this out on a single. I came back up, and we cut a B-side. Uh, at Olympic Studios here with the band, a song called Him or Me by Paul Green and Raiders. And then he put that out as a single. Now, he was starting to uh, work with Seymour Stein at that point. As a matter of fact, I found out later that he was going to be vice president of Sire. So he introduced me to Seymour. And Seymour came out to hear us. And uh, he said, uh, you know, what can you play me? And I said, well, I haven't written any new songs right now. We, well, we can play you Please Please Me by the Beatles. So we performed Please Please Me for him, and he freaked out. Apparently, that was his favorite Beatles song. So he signed us on the spot. After signing with Sire, the band would return to the U.K. 
to once again work with Dave Edmonds at Rockfield Studios. And it is there that they were able to finish a record. opens with its title track, an unceasing propulsion of energy that carries on the true spirit of rock and roll through its evocation of lovelorn desperation. With its instantly recognizable riff and anthemic chorus, the track acts as the ideal introduction to the record. And in considering the number of changes that occurred during the five-year span between this album and Teenage Head, Shake Some Action also acts as the perfect introduction to the new version of the Flaming Groovies. Some action took me about three months to write. Chris had just moved into my house, and I was working on three different ideas for three different songs. And uh, every week I, I, I was tackling them, and I couldn't get anywhere with with any of the three. After about three months, I decided one night at about four in the morning to put all three of them together. I was listening to Rattlesnake Shake by um, Fleetwood Mac. And I had become friends with Peter Green when I had lived in, in London in 72. So I was studying uh, the, the recording that uh, he made called Rattlesnake Shake, which is in the key of A. And back then, the British guys started making their A chord with an index finger on, as a bar instead of the three fingers folk style, right? So you could lift up your index finger and bring it back down. That's the jumping jack flash lick right there. Down, 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 you know, very simple to play. So I decided to write it in the key of A, and I also wanted to use the word shake. Uh, I, you know, for some reason I thought to myself, you know, I love shaking all over, shake, rattle, and roll. And I thought, you know, I got to put that word shake in there some somewhere. And it ended up being shake some action. I gave Chrissy uh, the last verse. So I, I told him, I said, okay, I want to I want to be a partner, a songwriting partner with you. So give me lyrics to the last verse. See if you can come up with lyrics. He came up with lyrics right away. 
So that was the beginning of our relationship as uh, songwriting partners, you know. head on every recording i have ever made since that time uh has my dan armstrong on the basic track i saw a picture of keith richards with a glass guitar he had a pair of snakeskin boots and a glass guitar so i got the snakeskin boots jimmy page told me where to get them and uh, i went down to music city one day a big store here in the city and uh, asked don weir hey you know about this glass guitar he goes yeah it's plexiglass i got one Anyway, that was 1969, uh, the summer. There was a marijuana drought uh, here in the Bay Area at that time. Uh, my friends had gone to Nebraska. I got a bunch of pot in the middle of the night and brought it back in. So, you know, I told Don, I said, hey, listen, I got I got a couple of pounds of weed. You want You want some weed? He goes, okay, I'll trade you for two pounds of pot. I'll give you the guitar. So that's how I got the arm strong. <laughs> Those days were, were fantastic. I mean, what can I say? You know? Sometimes I cry when I'm lonely. And sometimes I cry when I'm blue. Right now I'm crying because I love you. I'm crying because you don't. The track Sometimes, originally recorded by Texas songwriter Gene Thomas in 1961, is the first of six covers that appeared on Shake Some Action, and is based on Paul Revere and the Raiders' version from their 1965 record, Here They Come. My first backstage experience was at the Cow Palace with the Beach Boys summer show, and Paul Revere and the Raiders were on that bill. And they did Sometimes, and, I, and that was it, it just blew me away. We got a lot of flack for doing covers, uh, especially at that time. Uh, record companies wouldn't sign you if you didn't have original music. It's all about publishing, okay? They're going to get 50, 60% of the publishing, maybe even more, you know? So uh, there was a big hoop to do about, you know, hey, man, you're doing a Beatles song, you're doing a Raiders song, you know, you're doing a Spoonful song, you know? The way I looked at it was the Beatles had taught me about music that I didn't know about. You know, Mr. Moonlight is Dr. Feelgood and the interns, okay? Uh, Slow Down is Larry Williams. So, you know, I was getting an education when I bought Beatle albums. And I figured that carrying that tradition on and turn a bunch of new people onto this stuff, which otherwise they would have never have heard, you know? At that time, even though I had uh, James Farrell on guitar, James would always lay down his track um, with us on, on the basic. You know, the basic track would usually be the drummer, the bass player, two guitars, you know. 
And then I would just start overdubbing guitar, one guitar after another. But yeah, I took the solo, but uh, that solo is, is uh, I think on the, on the Raiders record, I think it's a guy named Drake Levin. It's either a session guy uh, or, or it's Drake Levin who had just joined the band at that time, you know, and I mean, there's solos, man, on like on Just Like Me. I mean, I, you know, there isn't anything since that I've heard which is as rip-roaring a solo as some of the stuff that those guys did on their records, you know. Just amazing. I saw them with the Stones in 65. And these guys, are they, they've got super beetle amps, right? And they're up about five feet high. I mean, these guys got on top of the amps and were doing steps, choreography. It was terrifying. I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> Never saw anything so amazing in my life. I'll tell you, uh, at 62 and 63, every city, every major city in, in the West Coast had a copy Raiders band. Here we had a band called William Penn and his pals, right? And they got the three corner hats. And there was another band called Peter Wheaton, the Breadman. They wore chef's hats. But uh, that, that's another story. <laughs> Flame and Groovies and Beatles Love Child, that is the track Yes It's True, contains chiming guitars, tight vocal harmonies, and a Ringo-esque drum part so exact in its execution that out of the context of this particular record, one could easily confuse it for having been recorded in 1963. going on there was it was one of the few times that I wrote a song based on another song's tempo the song that I was inspired by the right yes it's true was on the meet the Beatles album it's called all I gotta do we took what the bass and drums are doing and we wrote another song on top of that tempo which became very similar you know I mean uh, you know John's singing uh, Whenever I, you know, so I start my vocal a few notes behind those beginning notes of his. So it's in the same scale, but it's a different melody, you know. Oh, I- 
Following Yes, It's True is the band's rollicking rendition of the W.C. Handy classic, St. Louis Blues. Okay, let's do St. Louis Blues because it's the one blues song that the Stones never did. It's W.C. Handy. I mean, it's like a classic, you know. I got our version off of a Chuck Berry album, uh, Chuck Berry in, uh, in Liverpool, which I got back in 63. So when we were looking at what covers to do, after we'd done the Raiders, we'd done the Beatles, we'd done I Love It's Spoonful, I thought, okay, let's go back in time I'd take one of these old blues guys and do a song, you know? So that's Dave on the piano. In 75 at Christmas when we were cutting Shake, you know, we, we do a session, we break it down, we go to sleep, we wake up the next day, we start another session. And we and we listen to the playback of the night before. And all of a sudden, you know, we're listening, there's a piano on there. So Edmund, he started adding stuff to our recordings. You know, sometimes it'd be a guitar, sometimes it'd be a vocal. Even now, I'm I'm still so flattered. Uh, that Dave thought I'm, I got to be on this, you know. It was like, oh Jesus, what? A, I couldn't get a better compliment, you know. Written and recorded during the band's first session with Dave Edmonds in 1972, the track You Tore Me Down is one of Shakespeare Action's finest moments, expressing the universal message of heartache through its simple yet effective lyrics, interwoven guitars, and Be My Baby drum beats. A 
arranging is very important uh, to to hit records, uh, and also very important to live shows. I mean, you know, the arrangement is everything. I remember talking to Brian Wilson one night at his house, and Brian and I were talking about how the intro to hit records is is where you get sucked in. You know, and Brian looked at me and said, you know, look at satisfaction, right? What is that? Uh, three seconds, four seconds, right? He said, you get a killer lick and then you repeat it. And it just draws people in. You know, he didn't have to tell me that. I knew that from when I was 14 and listening to AM radio, that the intros were always real important. I mean, the intro to, to uh, Tambourine Man, for instance. Get out of here, you know. It's like amazing. I still get goosebumps when I hear it today. Chris and I were so excited uh, at being in Rockfield and meeting Dave Edmonds that we wrote this song in 10 minutes. I'm inventing the intro lick, and Dave comes out of the booth. He goes, what's that? I said, I'm, I'm working on this, this idea. because that's fantastic, Mick. Uh, why don't you keep working on it? So Chrissy comes out. We start working on it. 10 minutes later, we got, we got an arrangement. We got lyrics, and we cut it right there. You know, you know, we get these record deals, right? You know, you sign a contract that says what they're going to do. doesn't say much about what you're going to do, but what you're supposed to do is come up with the goods. You got to come up with a great song, you know? And I mean, we always did what we were supposed to do. And these idiots that uh, signed us, they didn't, they didn't know uh, what the hell was going. You know what I mean? <laughs> Clocking in at just a little over two minutes, the thrilling relentlessness of Please Please Girl is a non-stop pummeling of British invasion energy. We fly to London to uh, begin the recording in Wales. We fly to London and uh, Seymour Stein's got uh, a Rolls Royce and a, and a uh, Daimler for us to drive down to Rockfield, you know. And we get into the Rolls Royce, me and Chris, and there's a, a bottle of Armagnac and a, and a bag of Coke. So me and Chris wrote, please, please me, man, on the way down in the car. I mean, you know, here we are back in England and it's, it's let's go for Beatlemania okay so we write this song that's based on the songs out of Hard Day's Night the energy out of the Hard Day's Night album you know and we we, we were successful for sure I heard mama and papa talking last night I heard mama say to papa let that boy rock and roll 
Carrying on the same lively and raucous spirit of the original, the Flamin' Groovies version of the Lovin' Spoonfuls Let the Boy Rock and Roll not only serves as an homage to one of the band's biggest influences, but also acts as an anthem to their ethos as humans. I put it in because I, you know, we were, we were almost finished with the record, and I wanted a real rocker. Uh, and I, I, me and Chris were trying to write one for that point in time. And then I, I woke up the next day and I went, now wait a minute, let's do let the boy rock and roll. You know, the neighbors are complaining, and the school board's called twice a day. You know, I mean, the fucking lyrics are just fantastic on that song, and it pretty much sums up who we are. You know, we're the boy who. We gotta rock and roll, man, and we don't give a, a, a damn how we're gonna do it. Chuck Berry, by way of Tampa Red composition, Don't You Lie to Me, shows the band, along with producer Dave Edmonds, demonstrating their boogie and blues aptitude. Yeah, that's me on the Armstrong with the post tone on the basic track. And then I overdubbed the solos. And Dave took his guitar out, his uh, ES-335 Gibson, and uh, he put this incredible monkey beat. A monkey beat is do 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 That's what we used to call it, the monkey beat. And uh, he, uh, he really turned it into a, a cross between the Groovies and, and Dave Edmonds' guitar sound, which he has all over uh, Subtle as a Flying Mallet album. So, uh, yeah, Dave was immersed in, in slowly when we would leave to go back up to Little Anchor to go to sleep each recording night. We come back and, you know, Dave, sometimes Dave hadn't gone to sleep. He was still there 
adding stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, you didn't have to ask permission. I mean, we were gaga over Edmonds. First thing we did when we met him was, hey, what have you been recording that hasn't been released? You know, he played us a bunch of stuff and we were just over the moon. That's why we wrote You Tore Me Down, because we were just blown away by what we had heard. That's a, that's one of our best rock and roll records. Don't you lie to me. I still marvel at it when I hear it today. You know, it's like, wow, is that me? Written by Sonny Bono and Roddy Jackson, the exuberant track She Said Yeah takes its cue from the Rolling Stones version from 1965 and proves that in 1976, even after a decade had passed, that rock and roll of the pre-66 era was still invigorating and relevant. It was written by this guy, Rodney. I have a tape of Rodney... um, Oh, God, what's, um, he's, at, he's at specialty, and uh, he's, he's playing this, this gospel song, right? And it's an incredible demo. Anyway, I'm in New Orleans about 15 years ago, and Miriam Lina from Norton Records calls me up. And she goes, hey, Rodney uh, and his wife are here in my room. You want to meet him? And I went, get out of here, you know? You know, I met him. Now, when the Stones did, she said, yeah. I thought to myself, how the hell did they find out about She Said Yeah? It's a a rare Larry Williams recording, right? And that demo where Rodney's playing, uh, doing a gospel thing, uh, it's it's that song. And he's going, whoa, did a beat on, I said a yeah, did a beat on, I said a yeah. He's doing a gospel version of it, right? So anyway, I asked Rodney, I go, how did the Stones get this song? And he goes, well, the Stones were friends with Sonny and Cher. And every time they were in L.A., they would stay with Sonny and Cher, right? Well, Rodney's hanging out with Sonny and Cher, you know. So, obviously, he jumped at the opportunity to show him she said, yeah. And their version of it is, like, mind-blowing. If, if you look at what the Stones did with It's All Over Now, which was originally recorded by the Valentinos, Bobby Womack. That version is wholly other than the Stones version. And they were masters at reshaping and rearranging an old standard. And what they did when she said, yeah, was incredible. I mean, we used to open with it. It drive people nuts. The track I'll Cry Alone is a driving number propelled by its sturdy four-on-the-floor drum beat, on which a marriage of acoustic and electric guitars, along with a generous amount of reverb, create the ideal accompaniment 
for Chris Wilson's compelling vocal performance. very talented singer and uh you know he was flowering then so you know he would pull rabbits out of the hat all the time uh when we were recording it was you know he'd go out there do a vocal and uh, me and dave would look at each other and go jesus this is fucking great you know and dave would go yeah it's great but he could do better okay man that sounded real shitty let's do another one you know <laughs> but we used a lot of acoustics now the Beatles, uh, during the Hard Day's Night period, a lot of their songs at that time, the rhythm guitar was a J160 acoustic Gibson. You could, it was also electric. It had a pickup. You know, that acoustic guitar gives the, uh, the drums uh, and the uh, uh, bass uh, a quality that it doesn't have with electric guitars. And when you pop a, a lead electric on top of, uh, you know, a track that's got an acoustic for the rhythm and, uh, you know, bass and drums, you get a real rhythmic and bossa nova sound to it, you know? So, yeah, we were using a lot of acoustics on, on Shakes of Action. The world is The inclusion of the band's sped-up interpretation of the Beatles' Misery acts as both a tribute to one of the pillars of the album's sound and to the partnership that arose between Jordan and Wilson shortly after Wilson joined the band. Yeah, I don't know why the hell we did it so fast. You know, the hippies back in San Francisco in the 60s used to, we'd come off stage after doing Keep a Knockin', and they'd be looking at us and, and making a needle uh, formation with their hand and their arm you know uh going hey crystal palace they thought we were on speed you know <laughs> no we were just naturally speeded up methamphetamine was like the last drug the flame groomies needed we got that energy going without it Chris, having moved into my uh, house with me and my mom, we had a lot of time together uh, in the evenings to uh, practice harmony. So we would practice Everly Brothers, Chris and I, uh, and then we started practicing Beatles songs. Now, at that time, Misery was one of those songs we, we were playing. Uh, you know, every night we would be singing different stuff. It was easy to do Misery because we already had the vocal down. We're cutting an album, and we're getting close to the end of the production, and we got to finish the album. I want 14 songs on there. And Chrissy said, hey, let's do Misery. 
Oh, yeah, right. Okay. So, you know, we just threw it in. As we near the end of the record, we get the dreamy, multi-layered track, I Saw Her. There's a harpsichord on there, I play it. I play the auto harp. I've got an electric auto harp, red and yellow sunburst, uh, just like John Sebastian used. You know, we got to London, the first thing we did was, uh, we told the driver in the Rolls Royce, we gotta go to SIR. And so we rented a, a harpsichord, an eight foot long Baldwin harpsichord. We rented a 12 string acoustic. We rented a tambora and you know, I just want a, a big batch of instruments for this album at our beck and call. Now, I Saw Her was a song that one of my favorite bands did in the early days at the Avalon. Uh, and that was the song I Saw Her, which was taken from a 16th century poem. that George Hunter put it to music. Now, because we took Chris Wilson from Mike Wilhelm's band, because Michael was also in the Charlatans, I figured we owed Michael something, you know. So we gave we gave those guys writer credit because a song that old, uh, you could take writer credit if you if you say traditionally arranged and then you put your name. When I took the solo on the Acoustic 12, I didn't really know what I was going to play. I figured I'd start low and I'd end up high. And that solo was done in one take. And I thought, eh, maybe I better do it again. I came in and everybody's looking at me like, was fucking incredible, that, you know. And I said, okay, let's keep it. But that's one of those times, man, where it just clicked.
prominently featuring close harmonies and acoustic 12-string guitar, the album's penultimate track, Teenage Confidential, is a mid-tempo number that once again finds the band returning to the reliably rich subject of heartbreak. this song. Chrissy and I were working on to kind of test uh, our uh, training in harmony from learning Everly Brothers and all these other guys. And uh, so we wrote this song just so we could practice our vocal harmony thing together. And uh, Edmonds heard us doing it and he said, man, you should put that on the album. So that's why we put it on the album. I play a dulcimer at the end. It's one of those flat ones. You know, you kind of lay it on your knee and you play it with your index finger pointed straight down. And uh, I didn't really know what the tuning was, so I tuned it in unison. Gives the, uh, the ending of Teenage Confidential a lot of emotion. When Chris and I were writing these songs, most of them, it's all about love going wrong. You know what I mean? And, and that's part of rock and roll. That's part of the legacy of rock and roll. That one of the things that the, the, the singers sing about all, a lot. You know, uh, I love her, but she don't love me. You know what I mean? <laughs> The album ends with a triumphant jangle pop of I Can't Hide, and in much the same way that Help ends with Dizzy Miss Lizzie, instead of what would have probably been the more obvious choice for an album closer yesterday, the band rejects the impulse to end with a grand finale, and instead chooses for the album's final statement, a track that exemplifies the Groovies' exceptional skills as crafters of pure, hard-on-your-sleeve rock and roll and in doing so, creates the proper conclusion to shake some action. Just personally, I think that I Can't Hide is probably my most original song on that album. As usual, we're starting our recording sessions uh, during the Shake Some Action at about uh, 11.30 at night, because Dave would be in the bars until 11. Okay, so we need to go pick him up at the Robin Hood pub, he would bring a fifth of whiskey and 24 bottles of Worthington E or something, you know, beer. And then we'd record till like five in the morning. <laughs> 
So this one day, it's five, and I and everybody goes, "Hey, man, let's let's call it a night." So uh, George, David Wright, our drummer, and James Farrell, the guitar player, they go back up to Little Anchor Farm where we're staying to go to sleep. I got my guitar on, and I'm working on this idea. And Edmonds comes out, and he goes, "What the fuck's that?" And I go, "I don't know, man. It's it's kind of cool." And he goes, "Yeah." And then Chris comes out. So anyway, we write this song in 10 minutes. And Edmonds goes, okay, man, wake everybody up. Now, we get them back down here. We got to cut this fucker now, you know? Well, everybody came down except James. So James is not on I Can't Hide. Okay? That's me and Chris doing the guitars. So I'm teaching the song to David, our drummer, from start to finish. We started again. It's like the third Passover on the song before we record it because David needs to know the arrangement. He's perfect all the way till the end, and then he fucks up. I go, no, 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 no let's stop. And then I tell Dave, no, do this, do that. So we, we, we do it again. And then I tell Dave Edmonds, I go, okay, we're ready to do it, Jake. He goes, I got it. I, I said, what do you mean you got it? Just uh, I've recorded it, man. Come in and have a listen, you know. <laughs> so anyway, we're listening to it, and it sounds great. It's got no vocals on it yet. And we come to the end of the song, which is supposed to be a, a long ride out, a fade out, you know. And it stops. And then it goes, boom, boom. You know, nobody played this. So what it was is Edmonds had stopped the machine while it was recording, and then he started it up again, and it went, you know? So we had to learn that part when we played it live, because nobody played that ending. <laughs> For the album art, the band would choose photographs from an impromptu photo shoot in London with photographer Armand Hay. Those suits that we're wearing uh, were made by the tailor that made all the stuff for the Beatles uh, at the end of the 60s. Taylor uh, business called Foster and Tara, which was is Islington, which is a real rundown section of London. So we went there to pick up our suits. And we had also that earlier that morning picked up our beetle boots and uh, we got our suits on and we go outside of, of uh, the tailor shop and there's an alleyway. And I go, hey, let's go take some photos. So that back cover shot is that alleyway. Walked a little bit further was a parking lot. And I saw a Jaguar that had a Daimler front end. These are high end Jaguars. So anyway, we took a picture uh, around the car. I'll tell you, man, years later. People thought that was our car. They thought the building was Flaming Groovy's headquarters. I mean, you know, people are going, where's the car? You know. <laughs> Sire Records would release Shake Some Action in the summer of 1976. The album would not be the commercial breakthrough all parties involved had hoped for. And it is in the period following its release that the band would once again experience some change. What it did for the band didn't take shape until 35 years later. 
uh, like all the labels we were on, uh, they didn't know what they had. Now it's like, you know, some kind of classic or something, you know. And uh, it took it took a long time for for that status. We got to 134 in, in the Billboard charts. But, you know, Sire was not a competing label at that time. Again, you know, they had a product that they just didn't have the moxie to work, to promote properly. So what happened after Shake Some Action, we eventually were sent to Palookaville, you know what I mean? Your record failed. You're a has-been, you know? People in the band go, ah, it's not happening, I'm leaving the band. I mean, you know, the whole thing just fell apart. The band would release two more records with Sire. 1978's Dave Edmonds produced Flamin' Groovies Now, and 1979's Jumpin' in the Night. Chris Wilson would leave the band in 1981, and a decade later, the Flamin' Groovies would officially disband. But in 2009, Jordan and Wilson would reconnect and officially reform the band with bassist George Alexander in 2012. The reunion would spawn the 2017 album Fantastic Plastic. Though Wilson and Alexander have since stepped down from touring, Cyril Jordan continues to persevere and carry on the legacy of the band. And as for his feelings on the record that he and his bandmates made nearly 50 years ago, Jordan remains confident and proud with what they were able to accomplish together. We did what we were supposed to do. We came up with the goods and we blew minds. Now, whether or not anybody else found out about it, that's another story. You know what I mean? I'm very proud of all of our albums. We managed to record albums that have songs on it that weren't singles that are still uh, known today. We cut albums where, you know, there wasn't a shitty song on the goddamn thing. You know what I'm saying? You know, I mean, I used to tell the guys, you know, hey, man, we got to cut it again. And, then you know, they'd go, well, you know, we're, we're wore out. I said, listen, man. This, you're going to have to listen to this recording for the rest of your fucking lives, okay? So you better make sure that, uh, you know, what's on that fucking tape, man, is something you dig, you know? Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Cyril Jordan for speaking with me about this very special record. Another big thanks goes out to my main man and name sibling, Brent Rademacher, for helping set this all up. You can stream and buy Shake Some Action and more from the band on the various streaming platforms and online retailers. Or you could do it the way God intended and check out your local independent record store. See if you can find a copy that way. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at lovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.